If you turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 7. In our text, we have a sign that is not asked for, but it is given that men may marvel at the grace of God. The Messiah will come by a miracle of the virgin birth, and God has told Isaiah and the nation of Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, he told them this 700 or so years in advance, that this is what is going to happen. Isaiah 7, verse 14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then if you look at chapter 8, verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then chapter 8, verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, Emmanuel. It's translated there for God is with us. Now, you need to have the setting in order for the sermon to make sense. So let me lean a bit upon a commentary series called Preaching the Word just for an introduction, just to get the setting in your mind, because it is complicated if you're not accustomed to history and geography. You have Assyria, Assyria, and then you have Syria, and then you have the northern kingdom, Israel, then you have the southern kingdom, Judah, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and all this kind of it gets beyond us, especially when you start putting in names like Pekah and Razine and Tiglath-Pileser III, whose also name is Pul. It gets complicated. So let me uh, offer this because uh, it is a clear way of putting it. And so the introduction by preaching the Word series, it goes this way. God called Isaiah into the ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. Now this time frame was around 740 B.C., Now, by the time we come to chapter 7 of Isaiah, it's around 735 B.C., and the crisis of Isaiah's generation is exploding on the scene. After the death of Solomon, the ten Israelite uh, tribal groups in the northern part of the country, they seceded from their own forms, seceded from the, and formed their own state, if you will. The Bible calls the breakaway kingdom Israel, their capital city, Samaria. Only two tribes in the south remain loyal to the dynasty of David in Jerusalem as five-sixths of the nation split off to go their own way. So if you don't get anything out of the first paragraph, just know that there's a national split, ten tribes up north, two tribes in the south. This thing causes political upheaval. People who are in charge are concerned. King in the north, king in the south, these are complicated matters for a nation. Isaiah 7 locates us about 200 years 
into this massive dysfunction. By now, the Assyrian Empire at the eastern end of the Fertile Crescent is rising. It's growing. It's flexing its muscles. It's reaching. It's grabbing. It's dominating. They are skilled and they are constant in systematic cruelty. Assyria is a bad place. Very, very wicked. A very violent military. The little kingdoms of Palestine are no march for this new bully in town. So Israel joins forces with Syria. Now think, you're concerned that your nation can't stand an attack. Common sense says what? Unite with another nation. Let's get Syria to help us. So if we have Syria plus our ten tribes, maybe we can fend off Assyria. So they join forces with Syria, a northerly neighbor, and a part of a mutual defense against Assyria. They want the collaboration of Judah as well for further reinforcement. So it's like we have Syria on our side. We also want the southern kingdom to be on our side. It's nothing different than what we do today when you have fear of a nation. You start joining forces in order to provide protection. Why? Because people, as I like to say, are a-fearing. They're afraid. So we've got to muster up power and get enough power that we don't have to be afraid of China or Russia. Well, in fact, they demand the southern kingdom to partner with them. Ten tribes tell two tribes what to do. That's what they're doing. But King Ahaz in the southern kingdom is resisting the pressure. You don't want to make an alliance with them. So the northern alliance is threatening to attack Judah, get rid of Ahaz, and put their own puppet on the throne and absorb Judah into their coalition. You won't work with us? We'll beat you up, and we'll put our own king in your place, and we'll kill Ahaz, and we'll just take over your whole country, and that way you'll have to be on our side. That's what's going on. But from the start, the prophetic eye can see that their plan is doomed. All of these people are only looking at earthly powers. Isaiah stands in the room and says, I see clearly now. It's not going to work. So he can see their plans doomed. God's covenant with the throne of David still stands, despite all the people's failure. All the people fail, but God made covenant with David. There will be a king sit on your throne forever. That's why Isaiah 7-1 states that the enemy could not mount an attack against Jerusalem. The prophet wants us to know from the start that the threat will vanish. There is no need to panic. God is with his people. You don't have to panic. Ahaz doesn't believe that. And there's people in this room that do not believe this. I hope that you don't remain like Ahaz. Ahaz doesn't believe it. He doesn't even want to believe it. He prefers, what does he prefer? He prefers dismay and hand-wringing. That's what he prefers. He feels more normal frantically devising his own salvation and lusting for success according to his own plans. 
I'll find a way. I can do it. I'll make an alliance. You know what this bonehead Ahaz does? He reverts and goes against the northern kingdom and against Syria, and he makes an alliance with Assyria. Rather than delighting in the victory of God, his heart is so hard, he refuses to give God any credit. That's the setting, the defining crisis of Isaiah's generation, inflated in its emotional impact because their hearts are not filled with a sense of the glory of God. Don't miss it. Ahaz's problem is he does not have a large enough view of God. The people's problem of Judah and Israel, their problem is, is their God in their mind is not big enough. And when your God's not big enough, I can tell you what happens. If the government tells you to be a fearin', you'll be a fearin' because your God's not bigger than your government. And you'll be wringing your hands and shaking like a tree, like a leaf, as he says in chapter 7. And the reason you shake and you tremble is because you don't know God. Because if you knew God, you'd have nothing to fear. Not even Assyria itself. A national crisis is our situation. So I now recount from Scripture. And you'll find your place in Isaiah. And you can also put your finger over in 2 Kings 15 and 16. We'll just go back and forth for a minute and then we'll apply these things. Here's the national crisis. I gave you the introduction and overview from preaching the word series. And now some scripture. Assyria, Assyria, it's where Nineveh is found. It's where the great prophet Jonah preached 40 days and you will be overthrown. It's the empire, the Assyrian empire. In 2 Kings 15, 19 through 20, the ESV says Pul, P-U-L. <clears throat> Pul, his name is also known as Tiglath-Pileser III. So the text says in 2 Kings 15, 19, Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem, that was the previous king of Israel, Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver for every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. He bought off Assyria for a season. Let's collect taxes, let's get some money, and we'll give the money to this country and tell them we'll support them in order that they don't bomb us. That's what he's doing. Then you have Syria, northeast of Israel, right there on the border, Syria. And the king there is Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, in 2 Kings 15, 37. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, or Pekiah in some translations, the son of Ramalia against Judah. Syria and Israel attacked the southern kingdom. Okay. Then you also have the nation of Israel, the ten tribes up north. And Pekah is the king at this time. 2 Kings 15, 27 through 29. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 
20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured all these smaller provinces. I won't try to pronounce all of those. All the land of Naphtali. And he carried away people captive to Assyria. Now, I don't expect you to be able to track all that and regurgitate that on on an exam. I just need you to know that there's a national crisis with a real threat of people really being destroyed and people really dying from powerful, God-hating enemies. That's the setting that Isaiah is in. It's real. These are real kings in real lands with real people, with a real fight, and they really don't care about God. Then you have Judah. It's where our text is in Isaiah 7. You have Judah, and we have this king by the name of Ahaz. Now, when Tiglath-Pileser led an expedition against the Philistines in what is called the Syro-Ephraimite War of 733 B.C., Pekah, king of Israel, participated with him, but Ahaz refused to take part. You, you want this in contemporary language. You have the United Nations, and some people are not a part, or some people are forbidden to join. That causes friction. We're all coming together to be one, and you won't be one. You're the bad guy. So we start having these lobbying powers. That's what's going on. That coalition between Israel and Syria turned against Ahaz in hopes, here's their hope, that they would overthrow the Davidic dynasty. It's like all of the powers of the world uniting to destroy the church. Right? I mean, it's the God's covenant people. So all the world's going to stamp out the church, not on your life. This is what they do. They're going to try to destroy the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic dynasty. And you know what they're going to do? They want to destroy the southern kingdom and put up a puppet king in the place that he's not supposed to be in. You want to see that? Look in Isaiah 7. Look at verse 6. Isaiah 7, verse 6. Let us go up against Judah, southern kingdom. This is what? The northern kingdom in Syria say, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. We'll destroy you and we'll put our own puppet king in charge. That's their plan. In a twist of the story, Ahaz, who's rejected Isaiah's message, he turns to Assyria for help. This pagan, godless nation. You'll see that in 2 Kings 16, 7 through 9. And it says, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, notice his language, I am your servant, I am your son. Come up and rescue me from the king of Syria and from the king of Israel who are attacking me. I just want you to catch The king of the southern kingdom is making an alliance with a pagan nation for self-protection. You say, what's wrong with self-protection? Do we not have a God? 
Is there not a God in Israel? You want to go off and look at necromancers and fortune tellers? Is there not a God in the land? You say, where do you get language like that? I don't know. Isaiah 8, he says, to the teaching, to the testimony, listen to them. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should we not? Now, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, you say, well, how great of a threat is this? These Assyrians amass an army of 185,000 ruthless soldiers. They know how to kill. They know how to destroy. And they don't mind killing women and children in the process. They are a ruthless band of renegades. That's the threat. So Ahaz says, my best bet is to make friends with them. Because if I don't, they'll kill us all. That's the thinking process. 185,000 warriors coming down through Syria, coming down through the northern kingdom, and then going to attack Jerusalem. So this situation of Isaiah 7, the fall of the northern kingdom, Assyria said this river's going to come. It's going to go out of its banks, and it's going to go all the way up to the neck. Assyria comes down through Syria and comes down through the northern kingdom and takes these people out. It is a crisis which provides the backdrop for the message of judgment and a message for hope. You say, is there another setting? I'll give you a a smaller, more quick setting. I'll give you the same type of national crisis in the New Testament. There was another king. His name was Herod. He's a violent, evil man, is he not? It says in Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, wise men, he became furious. He sent, think about this, national slaughter. Here's the order from the king. You take and you slaughter every baby that is two years old and younger because I will not have a rival king that will come up to dethrone me. Kill them all. It's a national crisis, is it not? If it's your two-year-old, it's a crisis. And if they come to your door and knock and say, give me your kid, it's a crisis. That's what Herod does. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. National crisis. Judah is in a precarious situation with Assyria, Syria, and Israel flexing their powers. Ahaz is prompted by this crazy guy. His name is Isaiah. All by himself, standing in the middle of this situation, looking the king in the face. He says, I got a word for you, buddy. It's a crazy situation. So Isaiah says to him, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. You can ask for one as high as heaven. You can ask for one low as hell. Basically, Isaiah says, here's a blank check, Isaiah. Write in anything you want to write in for confirmation that God's going to win this deal. Ask anything you want, and God will do it. A blank check. And Ahaz says, in righteous, self-justified language. Oh, I won't tempt the Lord our God, quoting out of Deuteronomy. You don't even care about God. 
The reason he will not make a request is because if he asks God for a sign, it means he's asking God for help. And if he asks God for help and God does it, guess who gets the glory? God, not Ahaz. And Ahaz is not willing to do that. When this thing is unsaid and done, Ahaz wants the credit for leading his nation and conquering and providing a kingdom for his people, and he does not want God having any recognition in the process. He's not willing to ask for a sign, nor does he even believe. I don't know, sometimes I think he don't even believe God exists, but he certainly does not believe that God can help him. He doesn't believe God. He doesn't believe God's prophet. And you say, how do you know that? How can you be so confident? Because of what he does. He puts his trust in Assyria. That's what he does. You can sit over here and say, I believe God and I don't want to test God. But you're putting your trust in Assyria by what you do. That's what we do. We sit in church and we say we believe God. And then we go home and watch the news and we reel in fear. It's because you don't believe God. Your actions prove it. When you put your trust in God, your fears will be relieved. Now one more quote from this commentary. God's hand, God hands him this blank check. Ahaz refuses to cash it. Why? He doesn't want to trust God. He puts it in pious language, but this quick-thinking diplomatic hypocrisy that he uses, he knows there's strings attached. If I let God be a part of this equation, God gets all control and all credit. Ahaz isn't up for that. And we do much the same as Ahaz. If we don't want God, we find a way to make our unbelief sound plausible. You say, how so? Isaiah says that the nation of Judah must look to the sign of Emmanuel for hope. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that our day, 2022, December, is no different. The nation of America is not secure. Nor is it moral. It's not. Our nation rubs shoulders with other powers. Our nation is a part of the United Nations. And yet America at this very moment is seeking to undermine the family institution and legalize same-sex marriage and redefine marriage. You don't have the liberty to redefine marriage. God has defined it already. At this very moment, there's this promotion of homosexuality, this homosexual union. There's the promotion of the slaughter of innocent children by the thousands, even the millions. There's the promotion of exemplifying drunkenness, legalizing the drug of marijuana, embracing gender reversal, and totally disregarding the Lord's church. That's where our country is. That's how they operate. You watch the Senate, you watch the Democrat, you watch the Republican. It is corrupt to the core. And they're lobbying for powers and they're jockeying with all these things. But they are not calling on God. Why? They don't want God to get no credit. They don't want God to get no glory. They think they can save this nation. But they cannot. 
And here's what they do. They cram it down your throat because you're willing to turn on your TV and take the news into your heart and to make you live in fear where you'll become dependent upon them. And Isaiah's standing in the room. He says, look unto Emmanuel. God is with us. Isaiah stands in the middle of our country and he proclaims to Biden, the Senate, the White House, the Congress, all mayors and all governors, all legislators, and he proclaims to every one of them, look, 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 look unto Christ. He's your only hope. Look to him. This is God in human flesh taking up residence among us. Put all your hope in him. Stop looking at Russia. Stop looking at China. Stop looking at Korea. Stop looking at these nations and presidents and parties. And look unto the one who cannot fail. Here's a national hope. Here's a national hope in this passage. And you'll find the national hope in Isaiah 8 and verse 8. I'll pick up in verse 5 just for the sake of the context. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. They refused their own resources, if you will. And they're happy. Southern Kingdom is happy with Razin and the son of Ramalia. King of Syria and King of Israel, they're happy with them. They want to have powers like them. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many. Here's what the Lord's going to do. He's going to bring the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Brace yourself, Assyria is coming to wreak havoc on the whole situation. As I said, 185,000 ruthless soldiers are coming, but we got one thing, God is with us. Even though the people have more faith in Razin, the king of Israel, than they do in the Emmanuel, Isaiah says, Trust in God with us. I give you the same message. I just say it. I don't care about all the politics. Throw me in jail, whatever you want to do. I guarantee you, Donald Trump cannot save America. I guarantee you the Republican Party can't save America. No more than the Democratic Party can save America. You've got one bullet in your gun, Barney. Trust God. He's the only one. He's our only hope. We must be in our faith in God alone. God with us. Emmanuel. He's our only resource. Stop looking to the stock market. Stop looking to your 401k. Stop watching the perverted godless news and read your Bible. Even though all looks like despair, there's going to remain a remnant. The most secure institution on the face of the globe is the local church. This is the most secure place in the world is the church. How do you be a part of the church? Repent, believe in Christ, be baptized, join a local church, and hang on for the ride. But the church will never die. Never die. 
You say, well, this church is empty all over. You can look at it however you want to, but there's still a remnant. And there will always be a remnant. And God will never be without a witness on this globe. Never. You cannot take the kingdom of David and his dynasty and set up a mock king because our king sits on a throne. It's reassuring. God is with us. The entire scene looks hopeless. But the waters will only rise to the neck. You notice the text. It didn't say over the head. Just to the neck. Because there's always a remnant. Paul speaks of this in Romans 9.29. And as Isaiah predicted, here's what Paul says. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. But God always has an offspring. He always has a remnant. The answer for the hopeless situation Simple. It's just one word. All this hopeless situation we live in in our country, of all the immorality that exists, Emmanuel, 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 Emmanuel. The answer is God is with us. Can you see Isaiah standing in the middle of these three superpowers and going, I'm in the majority? Can you see Elijah on top of a mountain with 450 prophets of Baal being in the majority by himself? Because if God is with us, nobody can defeat us. Yes, when all is said and done, the church will remain. There will never be a time that the church ceases to be. Mark it down. Join the church. If the whole world unites to destroy the church, just stay in the church. Trust in the one named Emmanuel. In the Gospel of Matthew, I've seen a picture like this before that I'm presenting to you in Matthew 24. The end of the world is compared to the end of Noah's world. Matthew 24, 37 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Preacher, could you tell me exactly what was going on in the days of Noah? Yes, I can. Genesis 6-5 records it quite accurately. Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. The whole world, evil continually, the safest people on the planet were gathered in one boat. Eight people in the majority and a million in the minority because the eight people in the boat had Emmanuel in the boat with them. God was with them and they were safe on top of the waters while the rest of the world was deluged with a flood. It's no different today. You say, we're in this church with 60 people. It's the best place to be in God's church, worshiping and honoring His Son, Emmanuel. The only hope is the gospel. Look unto Christ. Look unto Emmanuel. Look unto the one named God with us. Thirdly and lastly, a national unity. A national unity. You find this in Isaiah 8, verses 11 and following. 
First of all, there's a warning. The warning Isaiah gives, I give you the same warning. Isaiah 8, verse 11 and verse 12. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me. Here's your warning. Not to walk in the way of this people. It doesn't take rocket science to figure this stuff out. What does the world do? What does the world watch? What does the world talk about? How does the world dress? What is the agenda and the philosophy of the world? It's not hard. You got billboards, you got all this stuff everywhere. It's pretty easy to see what the world lives for. Don't walk that way. Don't walk that way. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And here's what we all need to hear. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The whole world is afraid of COVID. The church should not be afraid. The whole world is afraid of Russia. The church should not be afraid. The whole country is afraid of the Democratic Party. The church should not be afraid. The whole world is afraid of all these things taking over and doing this. There should be no fear in the church. Why? Emmanuel. Well, you could die of COVID. Do you think death is the final negative in the coffin? Death is the positive that ushers me into the presence of the glory of my king. How can that be bad? Do not fear what they fear. Look back at Isaiah 7, verse 2. When the house of David was told, Isaiah 7, verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Watch. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Do you see that? The king and the whole nation is trembling at this news. And look at the idiot in the middle. His name's Isaiah. He's not trembling. He's not fluttering. He's not unbalanced. He stands clear and bold and he says, Emmanuel, 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 trust, trust, trust. No fear, no fear, no dread, no conspiracy. This is truth. Not being dread of what they dread. Remember a story, prophet Elijah, Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A, Elisha, maybe we could say. Remember this story. I'll just recount a portion of it and you'll get it. It's in 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was around the whole city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what are we going to do? The whole city is surrounded by the enemy. What are we going to do? You know what the prophet Elisha said? Do not fear. Do not fear? What do you mean do not be afraid? And Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How 
can that be? Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He's like, would you, God, would you open the eyes of By the Word Baptist Church? Would you open everybody's eyes in here today? And that today you would see there's more for us than against us? Would you open the eyes of this church to see that, God, you are greater than the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Senate, and the White House, and all the rules and laws are being made, that they would see that, God, you are greater and you dwell among us. The Lord's a sanctuary. A stone of offense, and he's a rock of stumbling. It says that in Isaiah 8 there. You'll look at it there in the text. Verse 14, he'll become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap, a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble on it. They'll fall and be broken. They'll be snared and they will be taken. The Lord is a sanctuary to those who trust him. In the middle of absolute despair, the one who trusts the Lord finds him to be a sanctuary. But he's also a stone of offense. The Lord was offensive to Ahaz because he rejected him. He's also a rock of stumbling to those who seek heaven by another way. There will be many who will stumble on this rock, the Lord Jesus, There will be many who are broken to pieces under this rock. There will be many who are snared or caught and taken to hell because of their response or lack thereof to Emmanuel. Worship. I'll give you a warning and now I offer to you worship in Isaiah 8 and verse 13. In Isaiah 8 and 13 But let the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Make the Lord of hosts the one you honor as holy. Fear the Lord God and him alone. You say, you seem to be making this very clearly about Christ. Yes, because Matthew does and Peter does. Peter says this, He quotes this passage I've just read to you about worshiping the Lord. And Peter quotes it, and this is what Peter says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you suffer, he didn't say you wouldn't, but even if you do, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. No fear. You say, what do I do? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They look at you and say, why are you not trembling? Why are you not upset? Look, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and you seem at a peace and a calm. Yes, because this is the reason for my hope. Because Emmanuel resides in my heart. Do it with gentleness, do it with respect, have a good conscience. But when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they will be put to shame by your godly example. Or if you want it another way, Luke says it this way. I'll warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, 
fear Him. The last waiting. I gave you a warning. I told you to worship Christ the Lord. And now I give you a waiting. Waiting. Isaiah 8, 16 through 22. Just read verse 17. Or 16 and 17. Look at Isaiah 8, 16 and 17. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. That's the right position. Paul tells Titus, just here, wait on the Lord. Paul tells this to Titus. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Patient and active, waiting upon Christ. Waiting is the active thing Christians do in the midst of a nation that has abandoned its God. So how do you face another day? How do you preach another sermon? How do you live one more day? Because I'm waiting on Emmanuel. I'm not waiting on Congress. I'm not waiting on the Senate. I'm not waiting on another law. We live in hope and wake up in the morning and we say, this is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad. How can you rejoice? Because Emmanuel. We suffer ridicule, rejection, and ostracizing. We ache for we are not at home. We labor for souls to believe in Christ. We know that one day Christ will come and we want to be ready. We want you to be ready. The unity that will be achieved will be the unity that is found in Christ. Outside of Christ, unity is an impossibility. United Nations, United States, will all be broken into everlasting fragments. You can quote me on that. United Nations and United States will be broken into fractions. The only thing that will remain unified for eternity is the church with her God. So I ask you a few rhetorical questions as we close. Will you be like Ahaz and look to political powerhouses for your rescue? Will you be like Israel and hold fast to your idols? Will you be like Judah and keep following bad examples? Or will you this day, December the 4th, 2022, say, As for me and my heart, I trust Emmanuel. Matthew said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who is Christ to you, sir, ma'am? Who is Christ to you? Who is it? If you were standing in the parade last night and Christ is thundered and the gospel, are you offended? Are you upset that we messed up with Satan claws and made him look bad because Christ was honored above him? Does Christ offend you? Does it bother you that Christ rubs people the wrong way? Does he he go contrary to the the way that you desire to go and actually church is an inconvenience because it convicts your conscience because you'd rather be doing something else? Is Christ valuable to you? 
Again, it's a memory verse. If you had to memorize it, you would have it in your heart. And the memory verse says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything he had, and he bought that field. Is that Christ to you, that you would forsake everything and say, i just got to have this one pearl? That's who he was to Isaiah. Oh, Christian, that you would this day put full confidence in Emmanuel. I can only ask the questions. Would you stop looking to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? Would you stop listening to the news media? All you do is become afraid. You get yourself all worked up in some type of anxiety, panic, because of a bunch of liars who made up a bunch of themes that won't even come true. Would you refuse to get help from Egypt? No, I'm not going to Egypt. Not going to do it. Would you this day say, look, here's the deal. Christ is sufficient for my heart. I'm not looking anywhere else. You see, Pastor, you're an idiot. Call me what you want. I don't care. I am satisfied in Christ. Would you walk in the confidence? Would you walk in the confidence that Isaiah had? God dwells with us. In Christ, and it is in Christ that we are more than conquerors. You know the verse, one of my son's memory verses. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you know that's true? We quote verses and we have these little theological answers for Sunday school, but is it true? Is he greater? You're like, well, yes, yes. Then why are you fearing? Why are you wringing your hands? Why are you going, oh my gosh, the government's redefining marriage. They can't redefine marriage. God defined it, and God has the final say upon all things of matters of truth. God said, one man, one woman, leave father, leave mother, join together until death do them part. You do whatever you want to do with it, but that is God's design. Oh, the whole country's going to fall apart. The church isn't. The church is going to stay together. So how do you know that? Because they're in Christ, my friend. And if you're in Christ, you cannot lose. Oh, lost man, oh, lost woman, boy or girl in this room, would you this day look unto Jesus Christ and be saved? He's the only means of salvation. He knows how to dwell in the rocky cavern of this little stall. He can also dwell in your hard, stony heart and make it new. Oh, that you would believe Christ finally this day. Confess him publicly as your Lord and Savior and follow him for the rest of your days. Because my friend, if you do not, this Christ will crush you into hell for all of eternity. Jeff Crago, if you'll come and lead our final closing song.